0: The rest of us will be in the book of Jude this morning, so I'd invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. It's near the back of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation and after 3 John. You may recall that a couple of weeks ago we studied the 17th through the 23rd verse down in the book of Jude. And this morning we'll go ahead and consider the concluding verses, verses 24 through 25. Just for the sake of review, I do want to set the table a little bit for us contextually we see that jude is the author of the letter he is writing it and jude uh, as we said last time would be the half brother of the lord jesus christ their brother of james he claims to be the brother of james but he calls himself a slave of jesus christ here in the outset but he's writing the letter specifically to those who are called it says in verse one beloved in god and the father and kept for jesus christ he tells him that he wanted to write him a letter, as it says in verse 3, about their common salvation. As he goes on to say, I found it necessary writing to appeal to you that you contend for the faith. That is to say, I wanted to write to you about our great salvation, but in light of the current attack against the faith, I said, you better pick up and defend the faith, or we're not going to have a faith in common at all, because it was under such great attack. And then what ends up happening in verses 4 all the way down through verse 16 is a clear articulation and outline of the types of people and the types of tactics that are going on here at the church that Jude is ministering to and writing this letter to. So he outlines the type of false teaching that is happening. Then, which what we looked at last time in a little bit more detail, was in verses 17 through 23. After Jude said, contend for the faith, and then he explains all of the attacks, he stops he says, but you, beloved. And he begins telling what they need to do, and he tells them they need to remember... The prophets have said these things. This is no surprise to God. And then he tells them that you must keep yourself in the love of God. And specifically the way you do that is by praying in the Holy Spirit, praying according to the will of God, in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Build yourself up in the most holy faith that you should be strengthened and to be eagerly anticipating the second coming of Christ. And then to be going out and actually grabbing people that are perhaps being taken away by these false teachings and the assaults against the faith. So there are those who may be confused, and there may be those who are are committed, and then there are those people that are absolutely convinced of these things. Jude has instruction to go out, and because the stakes are so high, to rescue people. So there's a heavy emphasis in the book of Jude, as we've looked at already, upon the believer to be contending for the faith personally. There is a responsibility for you, if you are a Christian, to be contending for the faith, earnestly, incessantly, promoting and defending the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But in the midst of the assault on the faith, and if you read through the book of Jude, it is somewhat of a quiet but ominous plaguing, as you read through it, of uncertainty. It's because of there's an unsettling reality that's staring you right in the face as you read this book. And because we're maybe perhaps removed generationally from this letter, these aren't our friends that walked off the planet spiritually, so to speak. They were their friends. They were the people that warmed the pews or sat next to them or did ministry next to them that were no longer walking with Christ. They have followed hook, line, and sinker into false teaching. Apostasy is a reality that is staring at this church that Jude is writing to and by application staring us right in the eyes as we read this book and it is a frightening reality. For those of you who are not familiar, apostasy is simply to turn away from. Specifically in the spiritual realm here, turning away from Jesus Christ in the once for all delivered to the saints faith. It is to turn away from Jesus Christ and say, I'm not going to follow him anymore. I'm going to follow something else. And if you've been around the Christian faith for very long, you can probably think of people who have done this. Perhaps people that have taught Sunday school with you, or even worked in the children's ministry, or maybe handed out bulletins. I can think of people that stood at that door right back there that right now would say, I don't follow Jesus Christ. Handed you a bulletin with the sermon notes on it that we've prayed with. Maybe had in your home for care group or gone to a care group at their house. Maybe they've sold you a book at the bookstore. Whatever the case may be. There are people that name the name of Jesus Christ and now have walked away from him. So apostasy is a reality that's staring Jude's readers in the eyes and should be staring us in the eyes. And I think the intention in reading the book of Jude, in seeing that the threat is so real. In fact, we talked last time that the most dangerous item facing people in the world today is not terrorism or the economy or whatever else CNN or Fox News might tell you. It is the reality of false teaching. Because it is false teaching that can not only mess up your life here, but can actually put you in eternal hell before an unrelenting and unhappy God for all eternity. So what you believe about God is very important. So in light of the reality of apostasy, because these people were falling off the map and we have people even here who have walked away from Jesus Christ. This letter is very appropriate. It should make you, as you read the book of Jude, as I have, and ask the same question, what about me? What is going to stop me from cashing in? What is going to stop me from saying, forget it. It's not worth it. The gospel is too restrictive. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't believe it anymore. What will stop you from doing that? See, that is the question that's looming in the book of Jude as you get through the first 23 verses. How am I going to make it to the other side? What if I really want to? Maybe I'm not strong enough. So Jude writes this letter to rouse his flock to action, specifically, contend earnestly for the faith. And in so doing, he identifies the clear enemies of the faith. But at the same time, he identifies the unmistakable sovereign. Jude closes this letter in verses 24 and 25. He provides a refreshing compliment. He provides a fitting capstone to this call of action. And we get refreshing certainties of the will and work of God in the life of a believer. We are able to see refreshing certainties that God will work in our lives and he will not be thwarted. Well, what are these certainties? It's all in verse 24. It's easy to remember and it's easy to see. First, God will keep you. This is to believers. God will keep you, believer. So the first half of verse 24. And secondly, God will complete you. Second half of verse 24. Let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll look at these refreshing certainties. Verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's look together first at the God who will keep you, in verse 24. No doubt we have all encountered some difficult times or at least had friends who have encountered difficult times, whether that's personal tragedy or maybe just the difficulties of particular life's seasons, something unfortunate, as we call it, happens to you. But it seems to me, and just thinking about this, there are really a select few words that our culture employs to try to make you feel better. And perhaps you've said it, and I'm not judging motives or anything here, but this is just what we say. It's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work itself out. It's going to be fine, right? That's what we say. And when we say these things, I seriously doubt that we really exhaustively think through all the implications and possibilities of whether or not something's really going to work itself out, if it's really going to be okay, I mean, we really don't think of all the possibilities for failure or success with these statements. We just say them because we want people to feel better at the immediate time, because they're going through it. And these words do bring an initial feeling of love and concern by a caring friend, because frankly, there's nothing better when you're hurting than to have a friend sit next to you and say, I love you, it's going to be okay. It does feel better because you do feel loved. But these concerns... By a friend, while giving a feeling of love and care initially, they do not truly have the substance to produce an enduring certainty of relief. In other words, you're going to wake up tomorrow by yourself and you're going to think, what am I going to do? Right? Now you contrast this with Jude in the midst of the most dangerous foe-facing humanity, false teaching, and it's—they're literally picking off Christians left and right. People are walking away from the faith. There are casualties in this spiritual insurgency. And Jude's got to say something at the end. He's going to say something with this letter. It's not just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, as someone has said, "Sola bootstrapper." Right? It's not that. What is it? What's going to really get you up in the morning and know? I oh, have certainty. So whatever Jude says here has got to be big, it's got to be good, it's got to last, it's got to be certain. Look at me at verse 24, he says, now, and in the Greek New Testament that is to cut off from the previous section where we are and to give us a totally different focus right here where we're going. It is a pivot, if you will, from the preoccupation with these false teachers, either by identification of them or their threats and tactics or the need for believers to do something. And it is a contrast to get us looking and thinking of something else or someone else. Specifically in verse 24, the focus is on Him who is able. It's as if Jude takes his loving pastoral hands and puts them behind the heads of these besieged believers. And he says, look away from yourself and I want you to look to Him who's able. The reason for any uncertainty or anxiety on behalf of believers would be because of our own inability, our own lack of sovereignty. And Jude will have none of it. He takes us for a walk and he stomps on all of our mirrors and says, stop looking to yourselves. I want you to look somewhere else. I want you to look at the loving, powerful God specifically the God who is able. The word translated for able here is literally the word that indicates power, ability. It's communicating God's sovereignty, His omnipotence, His unthwartability, which I don't think is a real word, but it fits. It underlined in red in word. Unthwartability is who He is. He's in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. God is powerfully able. He's unthwartable. Well, He's able to do what? What does it say? Verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. See, this is this is really good news. There are two words that I want you to zero in on here in the first half, and that is keep and stumbling. And the word keep, in most of our English Bibles, we have the word keep or kept translated three times in addition to this one in the book of Jude. Verse 1, believers are kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 6, the angels did not keep their domain. Verse 21, believers are to keep themselves in the love of God. However, here in verse 24, we actually have a different word in the Greek New Testament. And the force behind is a bit stronger than just keeping. The word could also be translated guard, protect, defend, keep safe. It is to used also to hold someone in close custody. In Acts chapter 12, it's used when speaking of Peter being guarded while in jail. It says in verse 4, "...when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to the four squads of soldiers." To guard him, that is our word, guarding, protecting, keeping aware keeping safe, keeping in a spe- specific area, able to transport from one to the other. well, who is kept, who is guarded? look again at verse twenty four him who is able to keep you 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 it's a, it's a second person plural, literally you all, or if you're from the south, y'all or from New England or Rhode Island. So we don't claim Rhode Island as part of New England. We just you not even know Rhode Island. It's a <laughs> geographic joke. Yous, right? All of you. You, well, who is this you? Is it everyone who's ever lived? Well, that would make no sense because this letter is actually contrasting unbelievers and believers and false teachers that are going. They've been actually mocked out for condemnation. As he says earlier, this is referring to a distinct group. Through the book of Jude, he narrows his focus to believers. He widens it to false teachers, and then he narrows it again to believers. Look at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called. Who are they? Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So the focus is narrow already. Verse 3, beloved. He's speaking to the beloved. Verse 5, I desire to remind you. Who is the you? Those who are called, beloved, kept, Then all the way down to verse 17 after talking about the false teachers. He says, but you, in contrast to them, beloved. Then verse 20, but you, beloved. So those who are beloved in God are actually kept for or guarded by God. But guarded from what? What does it say? Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Literally, it's unstumbling. It's to make you stand. It's to make you not fall down. In the midst of the false teachers and their various and sundry attacks upon those of the faith, you, believer, will not stumble. That's what the text says. You will not fall. This is not to say you will not sin, but that you will not turn away from the faith. You will not become an apostate. You will not become one who is turned away. Those who are truly beloved in God, those who are truly called, those who are truly kept for Jesus Christ will not turn away. That's what the text says. That's what God says. You will not turn away. I remember as a little kid, there were some kids in my neighborhood who loved to pick on younger kids. I would be the younger kid, not the pick-on kid. And every school or neighborhood has those types of kids, no doubt. And I would ride my bike down the street and suddenly these two guys, Lenny Varvel and Keith Boysenhoe, they would jump out from behind wherever they were hiding with baseball bats or sticks, and they weren't trying to take me off the bike by hitting me. They were going to stick them in my mags or my spokes to try to make me go flying. So I would either go over the handlebars, and my friend would get away, or my friend would go over the handlebars, and I would get away, or, or whatever the case would be, or we'd swerve and hit a tree or hedges or something like that. They, they were looming. They were scary, but I had to go down the street. But every time we go down the street, we're pedaling real fast. And then they would jump out and get you. It's like the false teachers. They lay in wait. And what do they want to do? They want you to stumble. They want you to go over the handlebars spiritually. They want you to crash and burn. And in the midst of this setting of those coming after you, Jude says, there's one who is able. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's going to make sure that you don't stumble. These guys are out there, but that's all right. Because God is stronger than them. He's greater than He that is in you than He is in the world. He's stronger. He's more powerful. God says, I will keep you from stumbling. People are falling away to all types of theological disasters. There's a crisis going on. Church is besieged by false teaching. And God says, I will guard you. Our greatest need is is met with the greatest defender. God says, I will keep you from stumbling. The text does not say, I'm sure everything's going to be all right. I'll cross my fingers and hope you get to the other side. The text doesn't say that. It says, as long as God is God, He will powerfully and successfully keep you. Now that is an answer that we need in the midst of a spiritual insurgency. That is the type of thing that just eradicates spiritual anxiety in the midst of false teaching, that is the type of thing that says, I can trust him. He's powerful. He's able, no matter what the threat, he is able to keep me. I may not be able to keep him, but he's able to keep me. That's good. All of the dangers, and they are a myriad of this letter, are solved by the God who is able. The perseverance of God is a powerful and certain thing, it's refreshing. So therefore, the perseverance of the saints is a reality. We can persevere because God will persevere you. That is what the text is teaching, and that is refreshing. Let's look together at the second half of the verse. God will complete you. And the two verbs in this passage are keep you and make you stand, and both of them are explained by the God who is able. He's able to keep you and He's able to make you stand. So Jude now switches from the certainty in the here and now to the certainty in eternity. There's a great need here, Jude says, and God can keep you through it. He can make sure He can keep you right here so you will not go off the track spiritually. But then, what about before God? What's going to happen on that day? Well, Jude answers and said, God is sovereignly in control of keeping you now, and that same sovereign God will keep you finally and ultimately until He presents you before His glorious throne. This is so good. Even if there was daylight savings time last night and you're tired, this should wake you up. This is so good. This this is this is the stuff that praise songs are made of. It says in verse twenty four, He is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless, with great joy. The passage says that if you, if me, if if all those who are in Christ, along with all of the believers throughout the ages, will be able to stand in the presence of His glory. The verse literally says, you will be able to stand looking down the eye, or eye to eye with Well, whose presence is it? It's God's presence. And Jude's here saying an amazing thing, that if you're a believer, you are actually going to be able to stand in His presence eye to eye, right in front of Him. You have His attention. He definitely has your attention. And you are there. And you're standing there. This passage is amazing on so many levels, but I just want to focus on a couple here. First of all, you and me, and while I don't know everybody here, I know many of you, but I know we're all alive and we're human beings, so we're descendants of Adam, we all have no right to stand there before Him. We do not deserve to stand in the presence of His glory, because we are born enemies of God and we exacerbate this condition by running from God and undermining Him in His glory. At every turn. Our heritage is not of devotion to the king, but treason. It is rebellion. We do not value the glory of God. In fact, we steal the glory for ourselves. It would be one thing, quite reproachable, yes, but one thing just to say we don't value your glory and we're indifferent towards it. But we actually go far worse. We steal his glory for ourselves and we say we hate you. See, that's, that's perverted. That's messed up. That's the type of stuff that makes monarchs angry. Can you imagine running into a king's castle and stealing his food, taking his cars out or his chariots or whatever it would be, stealing from him and then have the audacity to come and stand before him? You'd be scared to death. But here, text says, you'd be able to stand before him. You, as Romans says, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and exchanged the glory of God for the glory of self, you'll be able to stand before him. The word that's used here indicates our standing will be like one standing to give an account. That is to stand before the judge and look him eye to eye like one who's going to give an account. We'll stand before the inflexible bar of divine righteousness where the holy angels are flying even right now, covering their eyes and their feet, incessantly declaring the holiness of God. And you will be called forward to stand there amidst the flattering of the wings of the cherubim declaring holy, 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 you will stand there in the presence of Almighty God with His soul searching, heart penetrating, omniscient eyes inspecting you. You will stand there, Jude says. Let me remind you that when the glory of God is unleashed on folks, when people are in the presence of God, there is a common response in the Bible. It's either you become dead or you become like a dead man. It's because of our impurity and because of God's purity, our sin and His holiness. I'm just going to do a little survey throughout the Bible and I'll ask you to turn to a few of these passages. So keep your thumb in Jude. If you jump all the way back to Exodus chapter 33. If you're new to the Bible, you can just listen and jot them down if you'd like or you can turn to those pages. Exodus 33. We are trying to see what happens and what relationship human beings have to the glory of God and the presence of God. Psalm 68 says that the Sinai quaked at the presence of God. Moses, here in Exodus 33, 18-20, Moses says, I pray you show me your glory. He wants to see it. And Jump down to verse 20. God says, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. He's like, no, Moses, you don't understand. You want to see me? If if you see me, you'll be incinerated by my glory. Is that really what you want? You'll be absolutely wiped out by my glory. Flip over to Leviticus chapter 9. As you're going there, 1 Kings 8 says that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That is to say, the priests, the holy men, who are supposed to be the mediators, are going in there, and the glory of God is in the presence. They can't even stand. Here in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 through chapter 10, you have the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And they get exposed to the glory of God. See, you see first the sacrifice and then these guys. Look at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people. Look at this. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And the portions of fat on the altar—that is to say, that fire just came out and totally incinerated everything there. And what did the people do? And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces, down, shouting. They just saw the glory of God. They are right on their faces. Verse chapter ten, verse one now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. So they were they, they got momentum here and they're gonna run up and jump up and they're gonna this is their first public appearance. They got their fire, and it's time for them to take the show, and what do they do? There's all kinds of speculation on what they did with this strange fire. But let's just suffice it to say they did something sinful. They were impure text goes on to say they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which He had not commanded them. In verse 2, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Chapter 16 of Leviticus says they died when they approached the presence of the Lord. Impure, unholy, blameworthy, people before the presence of the Lord were torched in an instant by God's intolerant holiness. Consider Ezekiel chapter 1. He says, "He sees the glory of the Lord and when he sees it, he falls on his face. Chapter 6 of Isaiah. We're familiar with this. He says, Woe to me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Kill me now. In a vision, mind you, he sees the Lord of glory. The disciples in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured and they heard the voice from heaven, they fell down on the ground and they were terrified. Flip on back to Jude, if you would. And the Apostle John in the Revelation says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. See the common theme? Over and over and over and over again, we see... The glory of God, the presence of God, and sinful humanity right down on their faces like dead men. First Timothy chapter 6, speaking of God, says that He possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That is that is to make the sun seem dim. And we can't even look at the sun for more than, what, nine seconds and you go blind or something like that. That's what my kids tell me. I, I can't look at the sun very long. I know you look at it and close your eyes and you still see it burning in your eyelids. And here we have Jesus Christ who dwells in unapproachable light. That is to say, He is he's altogether different. Flip over to Revelation chapter 4 just for a picture. Because I think we don't think about the throne room like we ought. And we'll jump back to Jude. Revelation chapter 4. Verses 5 through 11, out of the throne, this is the picture of the throne room, come flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal in the center and around the throne four creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face of that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes, around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created." And friends, Jude says, "Christian, you're there. You are looking eye to eye with him in his presence. The text says, furthermore, you will be blameless. Blameless. And let me tell you right now that that is the only way in the world that any of us would ever stand before Him for more than a nanosecond without being incinerated like Nadab and Abihu is to be standing there before the king, looking at him as if one to give an account, and we are looking eye to eye, and we are completely and utterly unreproachable and blameless. And Jude says, that will be your position. You will stand before the intolerantly holy God, and you will stand there blameless. The word translated blameless is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe animals that are fit to be sacrificed to God. If you read through Leviticus, it's used 23 times according to my account. It's translated without blemish or without defect. So it's used of a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God. That is, without blemish, blameless. Ephesians 1 says that He chose us to, before the foundation of the world that we be holy and blameless before Him. That is the same word. Well, how can this be? How can you and I, the glory robbers, stand before the glory of God, the King, and be Blameless. Peter uses the same term to describe Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Ephesians, Hebrews 9.14 Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. because of the powerful, effective work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be able to stand before the King's throne. You will stand there blameless because He hung there on Calvary, blameworthy, though He was not. And you likewise will stand there blameless, though you do not deserve to be. If you're a Christian today, you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification. You have been charged with His righteousness because on that cross, He was charged with your sin. And by faith, you receive the righteousness that He earned, His obedient life, even obedience unto the point of death. And that righteousness, that infinite, eternal righteousness, is charged to your account. So you know, positionally, you stand right before God right now, perfectly righteous, blameless, positionally. But on the other hand, practically... I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We sin. We live in this body. We have a flesh. We are people that sin. Hopefully not as much as we did a year ago or a month ago, but we still sin. But there's a day coming when God will powerfully transform these earthly bodies into the glorious image of Jesus Christ, and you will be made like unto Him, and you will see Him as He is, and you positionally and practically will be the same because you will be standing there blameless before the throne. This is just a glorious truth, to be standing there before the throne of God blameless because of the Son of God who is indeed blameless. Do you see the connection? God would have to reject His own Son before He would reject you because it is His righteousness and your union with Him that gives you any merit to even stand there in the first place. What an embarrassment to us to try to cling to anything but Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 brings it together. You go ahead and flip over to Colossians if you want. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. I want you to see this because it kind of brings it all together for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's quite a resume, huh? Yet He, that's Jesus, has now reconciled you, that's sinners like us, in His fleshly body through death, and here's the purpose statement, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, Who's alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds? That's us. Who's reconciled us? That's Jesus. What's He going to do? He's going to present us before the throne of God, blameless and holy, without reproach, unblemished. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ and His substitutionary atonement. Thanks be to Christ for His active obedience to the law and His willing submission unto death. Thanks be to God to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you right now that on that day when you stand there looking down the eye when you stand there before Him with the peals of thunder coming forth from the throne and the angels flying around and everyone on their face you'll value Him then. You will value the gospel at that point because I know I don't value it like I should now. and Certainly you don't value it like you should. But there's a day coming when you will stand before that throne and you will say He died for me? I I, I shouldn't be here. What in the world am I doing here? There's a true statement that when you stand on that day, you will say many things about your life here. But some of the things you will definitely say will be I did not meditate on the gospel enough. I did not regard His blood enough I did not regard His keeping of me enough. I did not regard His holy transport of me from sinner to blameless enough. I did not pray enough. I did not love Him enough. I did not sing fervently enough. I did not anticipate His coming enough. I did not contend hard enough. The list goes on and on. You'll stand there before Him and you'll just say, Christ. Christ. You'll stand before that throne fully conformed into the image of your Savior. Your sin is removed. And you're able to worship and behold Him. There will be no fleshly impediments. You will not be hung to this earth by any type of sin. Your mind will not float away to thoughts about your own glory and self-exaltation or things about ways to waste time. You will be preoccupied with the King looking down the barrel, looking right at Him. And your hearts will be filled with redemptive joy, even as the text says, with joy. He will present you blameless before the presence of His glory. You will not be incinerated, but you will be overjoyed and overflowing with joy. Be filled with redemptive joy. You'll be beholding Him as He is, and your understanding of the gospel will be like never before. And you are before Him. And it will be great joy, great joy, as you stand before Him. I think of the stunt man, Evil Knievel. His son went and tried to duplicate some of his dad's tricks. I think his son's name was Kyle, and he jumped over a place in Las Vegas. And he got to the other side, and all the camera crew came running up, and his bike crashed, and he's laying there on the ground, and they're thinking, "Is he dead? Is he dead?" And they come up with the camera crew and the microphone, and they look, and he's laughing hysterically. And they say to him, "Why are you laughing?" And he just can't say anything and he just says, I should be dead. I should be dead. But I'm alive. You know what? We have something in common with Kyle Knievel on that day. You will stand there before him and you will say, I should be dead. But I'm alive. Great joy in the presence of God. So here's truth. God has the ability and desire to keep His children from stumbling, and He will present you before Him blameless. God will do it. He has a desire to do it, and He will do it. He wills to do it, and He wants to do it. He will do it. It's from the Word of God. It's certainty. So this is this is my application and thinking. What does this teach me about my Father? And you, you, you're invited to make more application or borrow some of this or whatever you want to do. But as I think about this this passage, I think. That my father is more involved in my life than I think he is. He's not distant. He can relate. He's close. He is loving. Furthermore, he loves me. He knows that stumbling is the worst thing for me. So he lovingly protects and preserves me. He knows me. He helps me. He's committed to me even more than I am committed to him. He's sovereign. He will not be thwarted even by the devil. He's trustworthy. I can bank my life and eternity on Him. He's unrivaled. What does this teach me about my Savior? His cross is powerful. His intercession is effective. He loves me. He will not turn His back on me. I can trust His promises. His intercession works. His righteousness prevails. What about me? What does this teach me about me? I, I need help. I'm a needy person. If it were up to me, I would fail. I would run the other way. If he left me unto myself, I would not end up in heaven, but I would end up in hell. I cannot achieve holiness or heaven on my own. Spiritual warfare is real and dangerous. It is absolutely foolishness to trust in myself. The gospel is indeed powerful. What are some ways I, I don't believe this? I, I tend to put up boundaries to keep me in His love or to keep me somehow getting to that other side instead of relying upon God. I, I tend to shy away from conflict. I may personally doubt God's love for me as if the cross was not enough. I may doubt His closeness. I may fail to pursue Him in prayer, in memory of Scripture, in time in the Word. I may fail to praise Him. I may be flat in praise. I I need to remember I have a responsibility, absolutely, to keep myself in the love of God here, but I better have that balanced off with the reality. That sovereign, almighty, trustworthy, kind, intimate, God the Father is committed to keeping me from stumbling and presenting me as blameless before His throne. This is life-changing stuff, guys. Because if you're a Christian here today, and you can say, I have not fallen, I have not stumbled... And I would say, why? Why does that happen? And if your answer is anything else, than Almighty God and His power and pleasure have done it. It's unbiblical and it's wrong. He's done it. And if you sit here today and say, God is great, I want to praise Him. And someone ask you, why? Your answer should be, because God is pleased to, to inhabit the praises of His people. He is pleased to incite in me God-centered praise to give to Him. He's the one inflaming my heart, even right now. It's the same powerful, loving, and trustworthy holy God who is keeping you today that will present you tomorrow. He is unthwartable. He is sovereign. He is committed to His glory in His own pleasure in the keeping of His promises. And you and I are the blessed benefactors of this reality. And we will stand before Him one day looking down the eye, if you will, looking eye to eye with the King as those who are blameless, not based on our merit, but based upon Christ's merit. He is indeed altogether lovely, altogether worthy of genuine, heart-flooding, passionate thanksgiving and praise. And that's exactly what Jude wants you to do when you conclude this letter. Because what we have at the end in verse 25 is one of the most stirring, glorious, and powerful benedictions in the Bible. It's not a prayer. It's an assertion of what's true. There are no verbs here. This is just saying, this is true. I'm going to read the whole, the whole passage just for the effect because it is glorious. And then we'll pray. And we'll be done now. Now to Him and Him alone who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Literally, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all times, right now and forevermore. And what do you say as a result of that? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You. In reality, if if we do anything but just sit and meditate and steep in the reality of Your glory and greatness and Your power and Your loving kindness, we short-sell You in Your glory. It is amazing. Your Son is glorious. Your love and Your kindness, we short-sell it so often. I pray, Lord, that you would ignite in us hearts that are aflame with passion for you and your greatness and your love towards us as your church. That we would not have anxiety about things, but that we would have comforting refreshment about the sovereign God who is able to keep us from stumbling and able to present us holy and blameless before that glorious, glorious, Throne with great joy. Amen.